Filmstruck is the streaming service for fans of great cinema and the exclusive streaming home for the Criterion Collection, featuring a bounty of independent and foreign titles, plus original bonus material. And Filmstruck is now available on Roku. Start your free trial today at filmstruck.com. Hello and welcome to the Film Comet Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the digital producer. There are films that you feel like you need to watch again because you didn't really understand them the first time around, or because you want to share them with someone else. And then there are films that you throw on over and over again, sometimes mindlessly, because they give you a feeling you can't get from anything else. These are films whose every line and camera movement you have probably memorized, films that present a mystery of compulsion. To explore this fertile and semi-pathological category of film, I was joined by... Cameron Collins, staff writer at The Ringer. Ashley Clark, contributor to Film Comment. And... Michael Koreski, editorial director at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Here's our conversation. Thank you all for coming. Today we're going to be talking about movie addictions. And this is not to put any sort of value judgment on the films that we can't stop watching. Everyone has them, you know, it's maybe it's something from when you were a kid, pivotal moment in your life, you know, maybe it's something you discovered in the past two years, whatever it is, you've seen it a million times, even though there are other things you might not have seen like Persona. But we're, like I said, we're not going to put any judgments on them. These are not guilty pleasures because there are many different types of pleasure and addiction. So thank you for clearing that up. Yeah. (laughs) So... (laughs) Cameron, do you want to kick us off? What's, what is one of your two films that you cannot stop watching? I'm going to start with the one that I rewatched most recently, and it's been on my mind a lot lately, Clueless. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Directed by Amy Heckerling. A movie that I've been thinking a lot about because on Twitter, people have been posting their ballots for the BBC top 10 comedy list, and I've basically only been clicking on people's lists to see if anyone has put Clueless. Because I figured, you know, I figured there was going to be a Lubitsch movie. I figured, you know, I just, I just kind of predicted playtime. the rest. Right. Playtime. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Of course. I love Playtime. There's no shade. But I was looking to see who would put, A, something as contemporary as Clueless, B, something about teenagers, because so many films about teenagers in the U.S. are comedies. I was curious to see if that picked up a lot and I have to say a little disappointed in my friends well I put both playtime and clueless on my list which is why we're friends (laughs) (laughs) that is why I'm here today (laughs) uh but it's just a you know I I have a theory that no one dislikes clueless but that might be because I've like ignored everyone who doesn't like clueless because I'm not interested but but and but this is a safe space part of it's it's a, a classic for me of a movie that I grew up with that then you circle back around to but you're kind of hesitant as an adult because you're just not sure if it's going to hold up to your childhood memory of the thing and Clueless is in the rare category of movie that has only, for me, gotten better as I've gotten older, in part because it's a movie, the, the older I get and like the more I know about movies, the more attuned to the style of its characters and the behavior of its characters that movie feels to me. Like rewatching it recently, I just kept thinking about how so many movies about teenagers sort of pick up on the fact that teenagers are in this process of self-making and that a lot of that has to do with how you talk, how you walk, how you dress. But that Clueless, even just those like two shots of Dion and Cher walking into school, it's like the world is the frame and anyone who intrudes, is, it's an intrusion on, on the world that they've built for themselves. And the sun and Alicia Silverstone's hair and the jokes, Paul Rudd being a dick. <laughs> The Radiohead humor that, yeah. to me, is still relevant. <laughs> mighty, mighty boss tones Right, right. Mighty, mighty boss tones aside, there is, there's something <laughs> really classical uh, and understated about the filmmaking. And I think it's yeah. a really interesting point you make about the films that you fall head over heels for at a certain age and come back to years later with some trepidation. I've been on this pod before talking about how like, U-Turn by Oliver Stone was my favorite film when I was 12 or whatever. <laughs> Because it was, oh, I can't, can't believe how exciting and naughty this is. And I came back to it as a grown-up and thought, oh, my God. Yeah. You know, and that, that formal stuff really kind of which appeals to you when you're young. And something about Clueless in, in the, the quality of the filmmaking and the, the restraint of the acting, it just seems to be a film that ages very well because there's nothing that, apart from some of the fashions, of course, but there's nothing that immediately aggressively dates it, perhaps. 
No, absolutely. I mean, even, you know, like the, the aspects of the style of Jess, right? Like, you know, when we first meet Dion's boyfriend, the first thing we see is his ass with his jeans sacking off of his butt. And, you know, that's not in style right now. But I just keep thinking about how, like, what an entrance for a male character <laughs> on his ass. Um, and, and, and the attention to the, the boxers that he's wearing, like the hat she's wearing, his boxers, the idea that like these kids put so much energy into how they look. We start in the closet. After Cher is having a bad day, she goes to the mall. And yeah, it's a joke. And the movie is absolutely in on the joke of the joke of teen culture. But what I love is that, and particularly as a liter- literary adaptation, there is this sense of, of fantasy, the aggressive way that it over-aligns itself with the idea of a romantic comedy, with the idea of kind of the Jane Austen plot, but takes that and allows these these characters to to participate. But it also just feels, it is imaginary. It feels very put on in a way that I think is a smart way to adapt a book, you know, not just directly adapting a book, but uh, in, the, in this case, it's Emma, but it's the idea of the book as a fantasy that a contemporary teenager might in some way be trying to live up to or become a part of. I just think it's really, I think it's really smart. And it's really pink. I love the colors. Yeah, I'm curious about, uh, and this will come up a lot in this conversation, what it is, yeah, we, we can talk about movies that we love for various reasons, but what it is about that movie that just, you have to keep revisiting. That's what I'm fascinated by. I understand it. I think Clueless is totally delightful. I also uh, like the point that it's it's actually a very low-key film. It doesn't really push its humor too much. I remember seeing, when I first saw it, I didn't see it in the theater, I rented it. It had already become a bit of a cult thing. And I really enjoyed it, but I thought, oh, but that's how odd that that sort of unassuming little character-driven film has become this cultural phenomenon. Part of what I think was really prominent about it when it came out, I mean, it's it's the era of a starlet like Alicia Silverstone becoming, at a very young age, a sex symbol. It's, it's of an era when we had, like, sex symbols per se. I, we were, I was just looking, because of recent conversation and criticism about how critics write about women in particular, I was looking at a profile in Rolling Stone of Alicia Silverstone, and it was a reminder that we don't talk about people like Alicia Silverstone in the same, like we being male journalists in particular, don't write about these people or think about these people in the same way. But Clueless in particular, I think, fits into a moment of, oh, right, this is a moment when I think she was sold as like a sex symbol, part of it. The other part of it is that teen movies as a genre persist. I don't know. I, I don't know about now. I don't know if there's anything. Is there anything being made other than superhero movies now right? or animated movies? Well, there about was a film Beavers. called Edge of Seventeen. Oh yeah, was, that's right. But that's an outlier. That's definitely like. It was that actually. And was studio? it a hit? I don't think it was studio made. It was sort of a cult hit. Like definitely a cult hit. But but it's very much in the tradition, I think, of a movie like this. And I think the reason I just come back to it is because it's one of the funniest movies that I've seen. It's a movie that I can turn my brain off and enjoy, but also actively watch, which is like. A thing that I need. I need a movie. If I'm going to be addicted to a movie, I need to see a movie that I can watch in multiple kinds of ways, which is not how I feel, for example, about most superhero movies where it's better if I'm not really paying attention. Um, <laughs> Clueless, I like turn my brain on and there's still synapses firing. I turn it off and I'm still laughing. What a great cast, too. Yeah. Um, An amazing cast. R.I.P. Brittany Murphy. Mm-hmm. R.I.P. Stacey Dash. <laughs> um, <laughs> And, uh-huh. and, and Dan Hedaya, w- with one of the greatest faces in, in Hollywood, given a kind of a, a meaty kind of comic role, rather than just some kind of menacing heavy in the background. Well, Ashley, what is your first film? When, I got, when you sent me the, the email about kind of a, a film that you keep coming back to, maybe that's c- comfort food in a way, a few kind of first sprang to mind. I was thinking about uh, Stop Making Sense. Mm-hmm. which is, uh, you know, I thought of the, obviously the late Jonathan Demme, who kind of almost repeated the trick with the Tennessee Kids, which was his lo- last movie, the Justin Timberlake film. It's an extra- extravagant kind of beautiful concept film which shows the process and it's like putting on a record, but with that added visual dimension and, and it's a kind of endless repeat value. But I actually went for two films that are both quite miserable and, and downbeat yeah. um, that I keep going back to for some reason. And the first one is a film that I know Michael's very fond of called Lock. God. By... <laughs> <laughs> so Lock is a very strange film, written and directed by Stephen Knight, who is a British filmmaker who peddles a very peculiar brand of macho sentimentality. 
He's probably most famous for writing Dirty Pretty Things and the Cronenberg film Eastern Promises. Locke stars Tom Hardy doing one of his myriad silly voices. <laughs> this time as a Welshman, a foreman who's big into concrete. <laughs> um, and the film is uh, a strange film for many reasons, not least because it's a rare example of a British road movie. It's a very low-key experimental film. It stars, as I said, Tom Hardy as a top builder. Mm -hmm. And the film begins with him getting into his car, switching on his engine and deciding, making a split second decision to drive down the motorway to be with the mother of his baby to be. It turns out she is a one night stand from a job that he was on in a different part of the country a few years beforehand. And he's abandoning the biggest job of his life, which is a build that's due to take place in the morning. So the entire film, all 80 minutes, is just Tom Hardy in his car using his car phone to navigate between different areas of his life that are falling apart. So talking to his wife and kids at home who are expecting him to return, of course he's not, trying to negotiate the, the build that he's just completely abandoned, trying to get his um, second in command to, even though he's, he, well I won't spoil it, but even though things clearly go wrong with the build, um, he's trying to kind of do it off off the books. It could have obviously been very, very stagey, and it does kind of fall prey to that in, in, in some respects, but the film was shot in kind of like one take for like eight consecutive nights, so it was all shot in real time. So the, all the actors that are in the film that are on the phone were all in a hotel together, phoning into him, in like, and the conversations were real. So there's a real kind of tension to the film. Um, and the, the, the filmmakers, the cinematographer and the editor do an amazing job in keeping the momentum going and finding endless new ways to shoot the car from different angles. And But what I really like about it is that it's kind of pinpoints a particular type of stubborn masculinity. Like, despite everything that's crumbling around him, he never once apologises in the film. He keeps saying, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to fix this. Even when it's quite clear that it's now beyond his control and he's trying to kind of micromanage. And it's a very kind of unsparing exploration of that type of stubborn masculinity. And I think there's something quite refreshing about seeing that. And I, I, I just, I don't think, you don't kind of see that very often in film. And it, the film doesn't try to heroize him at all. Um, I think Tom Hardy gives a really good performance. And there's something, he's very human and he's very kind of relatable and empathetic but he's also a complete prick as well and he gets to kind of go through go through that kind of whole range of emotions and he's so often circumscribed in his roles as an actor doing as i said various silly accents whether it's being hidden behind a mask in in the dark night rises or doing this or that or compromising his performances in some ways so it's re really refreshing to be just with him and basically no one else for 80 minutes I don't know why I keep going back to it. I watch it quite frequently. There's something about the film, and I, maybe I was hoping to, when I come here and talk about it, to work out why, but there is something I find endlessly compelling about it. And I find it endlessly compelling how much you love Locke. Yeah. We've <laughs> <laughs> been talking about this for a while, and obviously I can't really compete. I can't really talk much about it because I've seen it once. You've seen it 38 times, I assume, at least. Um, so I can't, my, my, my recall of it isn't so great, so I can't really go head-to-head -head with you on it. But I do find it fascinating that this of all films is something that you really want to go back to. I mean, and it can't just be the themes that you go back for. It has to be something aesthetic, right? Because I will admit the one thing that I like about the film is an obvious thing. It's a close-up of a beautiful face. I think he is yep. extremely yeah. beautiful. Um, yep. I often find him extremely unattractive in films, despite his beauty. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and I think Locke is like the perfect, it's just a close-up. He has really great um, stubble in it. Um, or maybe even a bit of a beard. It's a, it's a bit longer. Beard, a big chunky jumper, and he's nursing a cold as well. You There's all these kind of little but, details. But we're it. close to those lips, right? Mm -hmm. um, and there is something compelling about that. If, if you're going to have a movie where Tom Hardy is sitting in one place talking to the camera for It's a study of a face. Make it close. So that's why I like the fact that it's a claustrophobic environment. In terms of just the actual material, yeah, I've always found it rather silly. I, I do think it kind of lionizes that sort of frustrated masculinity you said you don't think it heroizes it maybe not but i think that it definitely puts it in a bit of a frame that kind of macho sentimentality that you talk about is just not my favorite thing so that might have turned me off to it early mm -hmm. so when he just keeps sitting there i mean i know chris and i we slowly turned our heads and we're like we're gonna keep doing this should we keep watching this it's it's trying if you're not on board with it 
even though in theory I should like it, I like experimental narrative films, mainstream films that just go all for it. It felt like all I could see was the rehearsal, the rehearsals of him sitting on a folding chair in some bare stage talking to an audience it felt like a kind of like a impoverished one-man show i think it could quite easily work on stage i mean it'd be silly i don't doubt that um Um, but i love that you love it there is it's something i'm trying to kind of put the words to why i go back to it there's something so self-contained about it i don't know whether it is indeed what you're talking about about reading his face about looking at those subtleties and the gestures of tom hardy and as a case study in, in acting and how his performance shifts and how his face really dictates the tone of the film but there is something about it cinematic i've seen it in a variety of different contexts as well i've seen it in the theater i've seen it on a plane i've watched it you know in various different places and and it's had the same effect on me and that's not always the case a film can have very different impacts on you where where you watch it but this i didn't feel i felt kind of no change it's funny because when you said the name of the movie and you said who was in it, nothing registered for me. And then you started to describe it and nothing was registering. But then you mentioned that he was just in the car the whole time and I realized that I have seen this film. I've only seen it once. And really the reason that my mind, and my mind actually goes back to it a lot and the reason is partially his face, but it's mostly his voice. I mean, I remember being pretty disappointed with his Bane character in that Batman movie, how you just couldn't, I think the two best things about Tom Hardy are his voice and his dog. I think he's a I think he's a really good actor, but those are my two favorite things about him: his love of his dog and his voice. And I just remember that movie being a chance to really revel in the thickness. Of, I can't speak to like the the silliness or not of the accent. In my dumb American ears, it just sounds like chocolate. Well, they it chose is. they chose it on purpose um, because they didn't want to. If they they wanted to give him a particular regional accent, right? They 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 thought that certain parts of the north of England, whether it would be Liverpool or Manchester, would carry too much baggage in terms of the history of how class and culture has been represented so they ended up going for a kind of Richard Burton-esque Welsh right. tombra um, <laughs> so it would be quite soothing and and he does get in musical a, yeah in musical very it's much very, so. he gets to use his voice and yeah. his face and it, yeah you know, it's, it's a good combination it's, it's very written it, it, it feels like a play it feels like a script you say it's not stagey maybe that's true in the in terms of the filming but in terms of the writing it felt very stagey to me there's, there's a lot there of, are times when I'm it, going to tell you what I'm going to say and the thing I'm going to say is it's kind of. I think there are times when when the filmmaker loses his nerve. There are there are certain sequences when Tom Hardy's character looks up at the the rear view and starts talking to his his dad in the back of the car. I don't remember that. And, and kind of. Ex- oh, that's when it really lost me. Yeah, that's right. When he sees his he's tra- his, his vituperative, almost Shakespearean yeah. monologues about how he I want to dig you up and show you what I've become and. It overstates the case. There, yeah. There's there, there's a lot to be said, even in a tight experimental 80-minute runtime for space. And a, perhaps a more confident filmmaker would, would have left some more space. It almost felt like we have to fill this with dialogue, when in fact he's a good enough performer where you can intuit things. Um, and is there anything, I'm not just bashing the film now, but is there anything more cliche at this point than looking in a rearview mirror and seeing a ghost there? <laughs> And having a conversation <laughs> with that, that passenger who's in your car forever. No, I'd agree. I mean, it, it, it's not the film's finest moment, but um, I, I do think there is something unusual about it. As, as Again, as I said, it's a very rare example of a British road movie. I can only think really of like Radio On or something like that, Chris Petit's film. There's no, there's no real sense of... Say again? Lolita. Yes. That's cheating, but... <laughs> there's, there's no kind of... It, the film, I think, looks beautiful in its own way, but there's not no sense of that poetry of the open road of the the American road movie. It's just this horrible motorway, and you're careening down it. And the film is it's a disturbing film. There's no happy ending. It's it's that the concrete metaphors are in, and building metaphors are rather heavy-handed. You know, I cannot deny that. You know, the, the film is is particularly subtle, but yeah, as heavy it, as it, concrete itself. <laughs> and on that note. <laughs> Well, Michael, um, you were well, very vocal I am about sorry. your distrust. No, no, it's fine. It's good. My it's, disdain for Locke. Yeah. Remember um, that no judgment thing at the start. Are, yeah, that's what I make. <laughs> no judgment here. That's what I mean. Uh, you know, no, we're film gonna... critics. We don't judge anything. Um, I, <laughs> it's only about appreciation. I will say that I do know other very intelligent critics who like this film a lot. So you should have a little club. Well, it won. It won. <laughs> Hey, it won the New York Film Critics Circle yes. Best Male Actor That's right. of that was year. It, was it New York? It, it was New York? Yes, it was. It was because, and it was, I remember even people who were there who were like, I have not even heard of this film. Where is this coming from? And here's Jonathan, Jonathan Rosenbaum. 
who uh, says, it feels to me more like a heroic existential Western that essentially focuses on the hero's endurance in relation to a series of moral and practical challenges, which inevitably become a series of moral and practical challenges for the audience. Like this podcast. (laughs) 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 J-Row's always telling us how it really is. Tell it, J-Row. Um, so my first one, well, I, I was having some conversations with Violet this week about the, the different ways to interpret this prompt. There are just so many different ways of looking at movie obsessions and uh, or addictions, rather. Mm-hmm. Are they things that you've been watching from a very young age that you've watched over and over again until you've just memorized them, which is the case of my first choice? Um, or are they movies that you saw at a very particular time of life that you had to just absorb and watch over and over again? And I, that really happened with me in college. Great. That's when you start to watch things over and over again. You have the freedom to do that. And but I'll go back to that in a second. Or is it something later in life that means a lot to you? In this case, uh, my move, my first movie is Poltergeist, and I thought that this would be an interesting one to talk about because it might give a little window into the soul of tiny little Michael, who <laughs> would torture all of his friends every year, every birthday, every sleepover for about 10 years and make them watch Poltergeist. (laughs) I didn't just enjoy it. I enjoyed making other people experience it. It's also, it's a film. So this is the 1982 Toby Hooper directed question mark, uh, (laughs) Steven Spielberg written and produced possibly directed, co-directed haunted house, special effects extravaganza that came out one week before ET in the summer of 1982. So that's a really great summer at the movies. Think about that when you're going to see guardians of the galaxy eight or whatever is out because this movie was rated PG famously. It somehow was always playing in children's houses. (laughs) I get emphasis on somehow. Yes. uh, My parents. Distribution was different in those days. Well, I remember we had, it was very early in HBO. We had got HBO for the house and they were showing that movie and my parents were just like, let's watch this. It's a family film. Let's watch this movie together. Uh, There were some moments where they made me leave the room or sit behind my dad, which is really interesting. Like if they would use his back as a shield so I couldn't see the TV in some cases, which of course only made me want to see the screen more. So basically from age five on it was a it was a constant in my life uh, it was the first vhs that i ever owned uh, at age eight which is really strange it was the same year i got the sound of music and poltergeist on vhs so that was a good hanukkah <laughs> um, and so yeah but literally every time i would have friends over i would i would i would make them watch it and there were a couple instances where parents would find out and get angry at my parents for letting me do that because it regardless of the pg rating it's an extremely terrifying film they're they're the ones getting woken up in the middle of the night because of you and your movie right uh this is the movie where a tree comes to life breaks through an eight-year-old boy's bedroom grabs him takes him out and starts to eat him yes uh and that was not steven spielberg's looking. childhood fear yeah, there, it's, yes, because it was written by him, so he based it on all of his childhood fears. Um, the little girl, Carol Ann, gets you know, swept away into the ether, and the parents have to go find her and enter this womb and take her back out of the womb of life or whatever the hell goes on. I don't know. There's a lot of gobbledygook in it. But there's a thrill to it. There's a real thrill to filmmaking, and it was the first time I realized now looking back that I started to really appreciate filmic suspense and what was really happening. I, I remember being aware that there was like a really exciting last half hour and that like a lot of the a lot of the scary stuff was kind of backloaded and so that's really interesting looking back realizing things are structured right so i kind of kept watching it over and over again to just understand it and myself and what scared me and testing my limits and my boundaries and then terrorizing friends and so and then as as I grew older, I kept watching it for different reasons. You watch it for the craft. You watch it for the themes. I mean, you know, when I was a little kid, you watched you, this is a scene where the parents are smoking pot in the bedroom. I didn't know what was going on. I knew they were acting kind of funny and they had like a box of cigarettes or something. And whenever that scene would come on, my parents would clam up. Um, and then I realized later what was really happening. I mean, this is it, this is a film about the corrosive effect of television on on the American family. It's a film about these like it's a political film. It's a political. It totally is. These, <laughs> is they these, did move the bodies. It's a total There's metaphor that. for America. There's the. I mean, it's the, the parents when the ghosts first come to the house, um, the parents are really into it. They, they have this like hippie, this late 60s hippie mentality. Really, this is 1982. These were former, these were children of the 60s. These were flower children. They thought that, you know, they were like one with the world. And now they're reading Reagan biographies. Um, so, yes, yeah, so, I mean, there's just a lot of 
there's a lot going on in that movie and you only realize them bit by bit as you get older and I'm at the point now where I just think it's like a perfect film and I watch it very very often <laughs> does it still scare you and if so what does that mean like being scared I think at this point a movie like that that I know so well where I ha- have the script memorized like I just know what everyone's going to say before they say it it can't really scare me but I but I can at this point I can be impressed by the optical effects there's an analog quality to it that's great there are things in that movie that uh well there was a there was a remake recently I mean if you just compare them there's you you just appreciate what they were doing in the genre back then so no it doesn't really scare me anymore but it is fun showing it still to this day, watching with people who haven't seen it before, showing to people the first time they've seen if they get scared and adults still do get scared by it. Well, I mean, I think it's also important to recognize that maybe because you've seen it hundreds of times, possibly. Possibly. As opposed to somebody who's just seen it like five times, let's say, you know the face pulling is coming off. But how disgusted or thrilled by that you are is totally dependent on how many times you've seen it, how well you remember it. Because it's, uh, or, you know, like the meat moving across. Yeah, I love the, that. Yeah, it's like, like there's, there's I so I don't get many... tired of those things, that's Exactly. Sure. And I have to say, I do, there are there were times over the past few years where I have watched it with someone for the first time. Mm-hmm. And I'm very curious to see what their response is to those things. Because at this point, when the hand starts to pick away at the skin and then it just starts to rip the face off in these Mm -hmm. big huge pulpy red chunks i think that is absolutely disgusting yeah i'm totally inured to it because i've been watching it since i was a child it's part of my childhood my childhood is unthinkable without seeing that face being ripped apart yeah but to see it for the first time it must be pretty shocking and there's no cgi right this is all happening i said that's actually steven spielberg's hand right out of the side of the camera and then pulling so he's a real sick bastard well he's inspired by argento and then of course the real skeletons because that's what now i watch i'm like i'm like oh my god that is somebody that is somebody in the pool with her (laughs) and you're like you're looking and you're like okay like what is this what does a skeleton really look like you know a real not a plastic skeleton like they're you are somebody too. I know. Oh, <laughs> and this is my this is my best transition ever. What was your movie? <laughs> you can't transition. Only I can transition. How dare you? Well, Michael, I'll continue with this gruesome theme. Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange, and I think this is probably yeah. You're so Michael is doing the cuckoo sign um, <laughs> and pointing at me and mouthing crazy and he's probably right to do so because this is really I first saw it when I was 14 and because I had been watching a lot of like animated films like Japanese anime which some of it's incredibly violent so you know they just have different sort of standards for these things pretty misogynistic um I didn't really comprehend the violence in it until I watched it with a friend of mine who was completely horrified. And I didn't understand, like I really didn't, because I was just struck by the amazing style. You know, the visual style, which is incredible, the sets, just the use of colors, the use of costume, that everything was so foreign and of the future, but then also run down. And then also obviously the use of language, you know, not just the Russian NADSAT slang that's being used, but also just how regular words are pronounced. Like when he goes to the old woman's house who's doing calisthenics and he kills her with a penis statue. You know, just the way that she she's like, you little shit. And like, and he, you know, when he greets Mr. Deltoid and he's like, hi, hi, hi there, Mr. Deltoid. Like the, all of those things are so unique and wonderful and just like nothing I had seen up until that point in my life. It was something that really made me fall in love with movies, even though it is a set-asizing misogyny. There's really no other way to put it, but that's ultimately not the point of the movie. It's not simply about like, oh, well, what is choice? What is goodness? What is badness? Which I think are kind of boring questions, but it's, it's more about how we are conditioned And, you know, if we are given one set of conditioning, we end up being a psychopathic murderer. If we are given another set of conditioning, we are, you know, sort of like a helpless milk toast who gets beaten up. It's yeah, it's 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 something that I really have watched over and over and over again. And also, I will say Wendy Carlos's amazing score is a huge part of the film for me. And from the opening titles, which are, you know, that bright orange color and the that rumbling Uh, sound of the synthesizer it's just like you're just so in such a mood and transported in a way that I feel very few films transport me well there is something specifically about Kubrick 
mm-hmm. in terms of you know the great films by the great directors his movies are the ones that are like repeatedly watchable like mm-hmm. you there it's about the little gestures and mm-hmm. it's not yet yeah, it's, it's not just like the perfect framing it's 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 the performances and the way people say things and the mm-hmm. way that they're positioned and there's something really weirdly pleasurable about it right like for yeah. a, for a director who makes difficult movies and that's his most difficult movie just in terms of the things you have to look at they are totally rewatchable mm-hmm. i i just how many times have i seen eyes white shot how many times have i seen barry linden or 2001 i mean these are movies that you get like a pure dose of pleasure from watching yeah I mean, for me, it's just all about, like you said, it's all about these little gestures, these little details that this was made by somebody who thought about everything, who intimately cared about everything. And also, uh, Malcolm McDowell doesn't look half bad. So. I, I, I agree with that. I, <laughs> that last point in particular. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, it's, it's funny that you mentioned this movie because it's, it's a movie that I grew up having lines from this movie recited at me. Like, I don't want to say on the playground, not that young, but it is a movie that a lot of, in particular, in my life, like a lot of boys like. Oh, yeah. Um, and Kubrick is also, belongs to the category of, like whenever, I feel like whenever a dude finds out that you're a film critic, he's like, do you like Kubrick? It's been my experience. And it's always <laughs> been this movie. And it's always made me so curious because it's a category movie where, because of the difficulty of the material, I have a lot of trouble watching it. Um, or even thinking about it. Uh, and it's so playful. And back to what Michael was saying about the gestures and the style. Um, and it's a movie that I go back to in my mind, but I can't rewatch it, really. For all the reasons you're pointing out, it's all, all the reasons I want to rewatch it, all the reasons that I kind of can't bring myself to. I've just had a memory. Uh, a friend who shall remain nameless once dressed as Alex DeLarge at a Halloween party and all night was mistaken for a member of Panic at the Disco, um, which he was not amused by but there's i think also for people of my generation there's a sense of this film uh, as forbidden fruit it was i believe someone will correct me if i'm wrong the film that was responsible for the closure of an art house cinema called the scala in london so for many years this film was untouchable unviewable x-rated video nasty so when it finally re-emerged in i believe the late 90s in the uk coincided with my real immersion into into cinema. I was really getting into it seriously. And I agree um, what you were saying about the the iron grip that Kubrick has over form. You really are watching somebody who's using the medium to its fullest capabilities um, from everything for the integration of music and the, the kind of low angles and slow motion. Everything has an aesthetic purpose and a, and a unity to it. Um, I'd also like to give a shout out to Patrick McGee, owner, oh, yes. of, owner of cinema's greatest eyebrows, <laughs> other than David Hemmings, but that's yeah. another podcast yeah. entirely, um, who's just wonderful uh, and, yeah. you know, a Kubrick regular. He was just terrifying, even in this kind of diminished, um, abused role that he has mm-hmm. in this film. My wife. <laughs> yes. Borat. Yes. <laughs> He's the inspiration for Borat. Yes, yes. But, well, I guess, I don't know, could we bask in Kubrick a little longer? Mother, may I? I mean, I feel maybe that's maybe rather than the eyebrow podcast, we should do the Kubrick podcast yeah, at some yeah. point. No yeah. offense, the eyebrow was a really great idea, Ashley. Um, <laughs> but I do feel like Kubrick is somebody who is strangely. This is not true. I'm not going to say strangely underappreciated, but maybe taken for granted at a certain point. Like he's the one we all have to love. Therefore, maybe we've all moved away from him. Understandably, we have to. And he's kind of one of your first big auteurs. But let's go back to go. Barry Lyndon's had its big moment now as well. I've noticed that in the past couple of years, like for a while, like Eyes Wide Shut had to come back as everyone's favorite Kubrick film. And now Barry Lyndon is, is that one. Well, Barry, it's another example of a movie that just has, it's this big, huge, amazing epic with these incredible exteriors and interiors, but the great things about it are those little tiny moments. Michael Horden's voiceover is my favorite thing ever. Oh, yeah, come on, yeah. (laughs) But I feel like, obviously, you know, I was a teenager, and I wasn't watching Barry Lyndon. I was watching A Clockwork Orange, and there's just something about the tone of the film that is very amenable to teenagehood, let's say, and just like a very sort of cynical view of the world. And, you know, obviously uh, the author of the original book, you know, Anthony Burgess, he was very upset that Kubrick snipped off the last chapter of his book where, you know, Alexander Delarge, you know, becomes a father himself and sort of grows up and realizes, you know, hey, I should be more responsible. And it's like, 
well fuck that that's the stupidest what are you why do you act like that is the best ending and that is so crucial fuck you like death of the artist all the way on that one Blah. like i you know the ending ending with i was cured all right like that's sorry that's the world we live in buddy kubrick was very good at endings yes let's just say a killer yeah killer 2001 endings. a space odyssey let this guy end a movie the way he yeah, wants to end a movie. <laughs> Have a little, have a little faith. Well, same thing happened with The Shining. I mean, oh yeah, the, the total, oh, I mean, oh, yeah. Stephen King Notoriously. is hilariously Stephen King still to this day he says again, I yes. respect it, but it's a terrible adaptation of my book. It's yeah. like, well, to this day, your book's kind of just okay, and that's one of the great films of all time. Right. So maybe right. you should show a little Tracking. appreciation. Well, yeah, and, I mean, I mean, <laughs> but I mean, critics. But at the time, a lot of critics had a huge problem with The Shining too, where they're like, oh, it oh, every time. oh, oh my God, he turned this beautiful drama about the family into this awful gothic thing, and what is Jack Nicholson doing? He looks like a ghoul. I don't know. And it's right, like, as though it's some sort of problem that the family doesn't feel like a real family. Yeah, that's I know, the I, damn point I, of the I, movie. I, I know. And it's it, like, and ends again brilliantly in a gesture that Stephen King never would have come of up with. Of course not. Of course not. Um, perfection, the last shot of The Shining. Yeah. And it's just. And also know. movie addiction. I was pretty addicted to The Shining growing up. Me too. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, Wendy Carlos, once again. Again. I mean, that score just borrows deep. Really. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm realizing now that like a, my entree into a lot of auteur, a lot of auteurs was through Stephen King films, right? So oh. as a kid, I knew about Carrie, The Dead Zone, mm-hmm. The Shining, Creepshow, because I knew them as Stephen King things. Right. Watch these movies, love them. They're all and the IMDb by major, ratified major greatest film of all time, The Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> oh, of course, yes, The Shawshank right. Redemption, and The well, Green Mile, spoken of recently in a film comment podcast. Yes, I was going to say my entree to both to all of Kubrick and a lot of movies was through cartoons so first Tiny Toons which would do these weird parodies of uh, movies for adults and also classic films all sorts of films and then also The Simpsons oh Simpsons Deep Space Uh, Homer yeah Deep Space Homer The Treehouse of Horror which is just a parody of The Shining called The Shining Um, (laughs) where Willie just can't save anybody and then of course the Treehouse of Horror, I think, the year before, had Bart dressed up like Alex from A Clockwork Orange. So it's just in... And then, of course, there's a great Simpsons episode where Lisa has put electrical nodes on a pair of cupcakes, which look like breasts from the way that it's sort of drawn, and then he goes to reach them, and he trembles, and he faints. Right, it's right out of Clockwork Orange. Yes, exactly. So We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back. Now you can stream critically acclaimed films and cult favorites from the world's greatest film libraries with Filmstruck. Filmstruck is the streaming service for fans of great cinema and the exclusive streaming home for the Criterion Collection. Filmstruck brings you a bounty of independent and foreign titles, updated weekly, plus original bonus material and expert commentary. And Filmstruck is now available on Roku. Start your free 14-day trial today at filmstruck.com. We can stop filleting Kubrick. He's dead. He can't appreciate this. Cameron, what's your next one? (laughs) All right. Well, my first choice was a comedy that I always go back to. And pretty much if I'm going back to a movie a lot, it's a comedy or it's a movie where I'm just in the mood to be wrecked by a movie. Um, And in this case, I chose um, In a Lonely Place by Nicholas Ray, which is in the category of movies that I only saw for the first time a few years ago. But just, and I don't always make time to do this. Like after I watched it, I was just so, I loved it. But I was also just like, how did this work? How did this happen to me? Um, you know, you feel like you're you're on the same page as a movie. You understand what's happening as it's going on. You understand formally what the director's going for. And then still you land in this place that you just could not have predicted emotionally. And just that movie just has always blown me away. And I think part of the reason I keep coming back to it is because of the Humphrey Bogart character, the questions about his inner violence and how that inflects his artistic imagination in that movie. I think I come back to the movie a lot because I I like thinking about artists in those kinds of terms. I like thinking about artists. I like a movie that's about an artist where his emotional life and his, his imaginary, his imagination, his artistic drive are, are in conversation in a way that just feels complex and weird and in this case, tragic and sad and also because it's it's a genuinely devastating movie for me it's it's a movie that is uncomfortably sad for me and that's why I only really watch it when I'm like I want to cry um I want to be I want to be taken to a place where 
you know, just a place where I can't come back from. In a lonely place is what the name of the movie is, and that's where I go when I watch the movie. But it's, <laughs> it's, it's just I don't know. I could look, I could look at Gloria Graham's face all day and the things that she does with her face. I could look, I could rewatch the scene of Humphrey Bogart getting the book described to him by the actress Martha Stewart, who plays Mildred, who is early in the film. She's describing a, a book to him that he's possibly turning into a screenplay, and that scene, her describing the book right to me uh, in my seat, is always just striking and heartbreaking for me because of what happens to her. I could go on and on. Just the scene of him kind of reenacting the possible murder with his cop friend and the cop friend's wife. It just, all of it, I just, I keep coming back to these moments and just thinking, A, how did this happen? How am I feeling this way as I watch this? But B, how radical and weird and sad and charged this movie is it just i just love to live in the space of it really i think it's really interesting when you when a movie that you're addicted to is a movie that is really really sad <laughs> why do you need to go back to that why do you need to feel that we kind of we had a podcast about tear jerkers mm-hmm. um a while back where we kind of picked the films that we find cathartic that we go back to i guess there are the the feel-good tear jerkers like for me it was the color purple like, i have seen it so many times that it is an addiction it really is like i actually have to watch it about once a year just to get that effect but in terms of like a really sad movie the last time i remember it happening was like the seventh victim also a 1940s film because i watched and i thought how did they do this like how did they actually accomplish that feeling and i that's what i understand and i love it in the only place it's just devastating because i'm a total sap but i'm like a cynical sap if, if it's like too easy, I'm not interested. Um, and which is why my kind of cathartic tearjerker movies are very few. It's like this and Margaret. <laughs> and Margaret, it's really like the, it's Margaret is like toward the end. It's really the payoff of um, Anna Paquin thinking she sees Mark Ruffalo drive by before she goes to the theater before the last scene. And then she starts crying eventually. And then of course I start crying. But in this case, it's just, I was watching In a Lonely Place this morning and I just, um, it's just every time I turn it on, I get completely carried away. It's just there are very few films for me that work so consistently on the level of I'm so interested in what's happening formally here. And I'm so, so overwhelmed already from the first moment, hum- Humphrey Bogart on the street, someone recognizing him and him being a dick. From, from, you know, from that moment, I'm already kind of like, wow, this movie's fucking with me all over again. It's just every time I watch it, it's like it's new for me. And I watch it quite often frankly do you know what's wrong with him what's his deal he's a man (laughs) (laughs) thanks for clearing that up (laughs) you're welcome also part of it's that i think that i mean i was i was reading on wikipedia that i think lauren bacall and others have talked about how he this feels like a role that's closest to his persona but i can't i can't get into that stuff because the more real it is the less good cathartic sad it is for me and the more actually tragic yes exactly, exactly. <laughs> when it gets too real then i it's not cathartic for yeah. me ashley what's your second film my second film i think echoes cameron um in in a film it never fails to to make me cry um it's another another quite quite sad film it's called wonderland directed by the erratic prolific british director michael winterbottom <laughs> Um, Sometimes he really just forgets how to make a movie. And then other times he makes a fucking masterpiece. He, he's, he's your kind of classic anti-auteur. There are very little defining features between his films. You know, um, This is a film that came out in 1999. And it's a very, very personal one for me because I've watched it many times before I moved to the States. And I've watched it with increasing regularity since moving to the States. And it puts me in a very very emotional place about where I grew up in London Uh, the film is set uh, across a three-day weekend in November bonfire night Guy Fawkes night in in central London and south London and it follows it's loosely based on three sisters by Chekhov it follows three three sisters all in their 20s across these three days going through their various situations with generally quite useless men disappointing dads useless one night stands and it's an incredible movie for for many for many reasons one of which is in the late 90s uh, british cinema was packaging a very particular style of 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 film as an export i think of the ridiculous representation the ethnically cleansed representation of london uh, that notting hill provided for example and and that whole kind of 
that tied in very nicely with with the heritage brand and genre and this film shows shows you a london that you very very rarely see it's beautifully shot very grainy 16 mil handheld it darts around a london that simply doesn't exist anymore this is pre-gentrification soho there are many similarities with what's happening between central london and manhattan the film does a beautiful thing of relies on gesture it doesn't rely on exposition it relies so much on on gesture and facial expression and movement um to to build character rather than dialogue there is there is talk in the film but it's not didactic talk um the film never feels overly scripted and he does a wonderful thing of just shooting faces there are countless montages whether it's in a pub or a soccer stadium um of just or a bingo hall of just faces of people so you get this real patchwork of a city so when the main characters exit the stage we'll see just people's faces it's kind of edward hopper-esque um activity and it puts me in a very emotional place about what i miss about london um and also about how communication styles are different you know about how how we communicate with each other differently the codes that we have the perhaps passive aggression that british people have and 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 londoners and um the sadnesses that we that we keep inside we we don't we're not as open Uh, and this film kind of somehow in in its intricate dense but still quite light way there's some very kind of classic kind of black humor in it too it just is i find it very transporting film and it's a film that always makes me cry. I watched it this morning, and as soon as it finished, I cried. Bear in mind, this is being recorded the day after the the, the most recent British election, so I've been in a very kind of British headspace. Um, and this this year at large, since since Brexit, has been very difficult to kind of to process. So anything that gives me a, a a real authentic and vibrant feeling of what it's like to be back home is obviously going to resonate with me. But but the the film has meant more and more to me the the longer I've been away from home. And that film, more than any other uh, takes me back emotionally and psychologically you know a word that i feel like we haven't used yet but that feels very germane to this and particularly to what you're saying is nostalgia i'm wondering like how nostalgia factors into rewatchability i mean i just keep thinking about um you know i don't have this experience i'm not like i'm not outside of the country where i grew up and when you say that it that you're in a kind of British headspace and that this is a movie you think to put on. That's very powerful to me because I don't, I mean, I'm from New Jersey and there's no, no New Jersey thing that, okay, well, no, Bruce Springsteen. Okay, never mind. Bruce Springsteen is like my thing, I guess. But like, the, it's very powerful to me that it, it's a movie that puts you in a place. It brings that everything that I repress on a day to day basis, like yeah. the, the joke that I will tell that, that an American friend doesn't get, that I right. know for a fact an English friend would have got, a cultural reference point that I have to keep inside right because i know that it won't fly in a particular social space um it's it unlocks all of those things in me and there are also various formal formal qualities um the, the score by michael nyman is absolutely nyman. gorgeous it's a kind of chilled out version of uh, the the thing he did for cook the thief <laughs> so it's very very um it's kind of like the nice version of that mm. um can't picture a nice version of that theme. <laughs> no, it's Michael Nyman's like OG of oh, amazing lo- oh, scores. I, I I love Michael Nyman and I love the score for Crooked Thief as Wife for Lover. I can't picture that, that, a that, nice well, version of seen, that score. Is what I'm saying. Have you ever seen Man with a Movie Camera? Mm. The Zeke of Veritov with mm-hmm. with the Nyman score. It's great. I don't know if I've seen the Nyman. I've heard oh, the Nyman it's score. like a completely different film. It's, it totally transforms it's, the movie. It's yeah. the easily the best of those types of scores ever. But anyway, sorry. Yeah, but it's just, it, yeah, in, in all the ways that the Cook the Thief score is stressful and propulsive, mm-hmm. this keeps a similar, slightly similar tonal quality, but in, but it's more r- relaxed and, and hopeful. There's one very specific thing that I love about this film. There's a very kind of, uh, there's a real fidelity to how it portrays the geography of London. I've nothing against poetic renderings of a city, like one of my favourite films is Naked mm-hmm. by Mike Lee, in which the West End magically turns into Shoreditch, you know, and, and there's no kind of geographical f- fidelity. But this film, every bus ride, every walk connects. Mm-hmm. There's a real sense of characters going from A to B. That might not be a big deal for an audience who doesn't know the area, but for me, for someone who has been to these places, and it's, I, I think it's an age-old question of representation, seeing areas that I know and love and have, have drunk in and, and you know, of... of have been with friends in to see those represented with, with real love and care for for how the geography of the film is is constructed is quite rare i think mm-hmm. and particularly south london uh it, it doesn't get a, a great a very authentic representation very often um and 
that that film it means a lot to me Michael, does nostalgia figure into your next film? Not really. I don't think so. Okay. Well, I couldn't decide what to do for the next one because, as I said before, there was the, in, in, co- in college you have that moment where you become, you're, you're kind of on your own and you can make your own schedule and you can go where you want and do your own thing. And so that's, and I was studying film, so I was, I was seeing the same movies over and over again if I wanted to. Like I remember I saw Magnolia six times in the theater. <laughs> and, you know, that, I'm not saying that I, Dislike the film now, but for a college student studying film, that movie was really exciting. So six I had six times is a lot. Six times is eighteen hours. That's a long time. Yeah, so <laughs> I mean, when you say that, I immediately think of the kid who pees in himself because he's sitting there so long. <laughs> <laughs> I kept people. People did think I was a little crazy. They said, "You're going to go see that again." I remember skipping class at one point to see it for the fifth time. And regardless of how I feel about the film now, it's different. And so I was going to talk about that. Then I was going to talk about. I actually, I, I was going to talk about Bamboozled, but then I realized that. Ashley should be the one he wrote a book about it so he's the one talking about that so I'm not even gonna bring it up but I was kind of addicted to it I saw it like eight times and I made everybody I know watch it and that's kind of weird and I'm, I have to kind of psychologically going and everything. I was <laughs> yeah I had to have a word with him but he's like, I, need have to, you, I need to psychologically look at this have you heard of this thing <laughs> But I was, it was like, um, it was almost like outrage. It was almost like I had to like own my outrage and I discovered this thing mm-hmm. and I needed everyone to share it with me. And that's a different kind of addiction, I guess. But then I thought, <laughs> I'll go with something a little lighter. And mm-hmm. um, I'm going to talk about the Devil Wars Prada. Yes. Because <laughs> it's the only, I think it's the only studio film of the last decade plus. It's 2006. So it's a little over a decade that I have watched over and over and over again. I think part of it's that it's just always on television and if it's on, I can't stop watching it. But I also have a DVD of it. Um, I only saw it once in the theater, but then, and I thought, oh, that was fine. But then I kept going back to it over and over and over again. Part of the appeal when I first saw it was that I was just coming off of um, a job where I had an, an editor and she was, she's sort of, She's gone now, so I won't say too much about her. But she was a big editor at a big magazine. She was sort of famous for being, you know, thriving on humiliation. And um, she was just kind of generally nasty. And very impressive woman. Not going to name names. Uh, <laughs> but very difficult to work with. And Meryl Streep's performance and, and the, as this Anna Wintour-like character in The Divorce Prada is so uncannily like the way this woman led in the office that I was actually kind of amazed. And it, I've always liked Meryl Streep, but I had a newfound appreciation for her after that because I thought, did she sit and study this woman's mannerisms and way of talking? That kind of, um, the way that instead of just being aggressive, she'll say things like, I'm just so confused that you would do such a thing. I'm just confused by this. you know. And then that cuts you to the quick so much more than any you know punch in the stomach could. I, I think I just like office comedies a lot i think that's something that i find very strangely disturbingly reassuring to watch i don't know why i feel like those little microcosms are really fascinating it's kind of a it looks it looks very sitcom it's overlit it has that terrible look of aughts studio product but there's something really kind of interesting going on in that movie where you don't really know who to side with you don't really know what is right and what is wrong what the film is saying about professionalism about professional women about who's in charge who has power who doesn't i mean meryl streep's ostensibly the antagonist but if you're watching a movie with meryl streep and Anne hathaway meryl streep is not going to be the antagonist (laughs) so this just naturally happens as you're watching it i've just always been completely enamored of it and it's it's such it's it's it is like candy i mean it's it's on and you just can't possibly turn it off i find it to be workmanlike in the best possible way um though i think the paris scenes are pretty bad there have been some times where i actually will turn the movie off before they go to paris because that's sort of embarrassing and it has that terrible actor from the la confidential simon baker Ooh, i can't deal with that but Again, Meryl Streep's inflections, the way she moves her hands, the way she's dressed, the way her hair is styled is so completely pleasurable to me that I have to keep looking at it over and over again. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like Locke in a way, except that she's not stuck <laughs> in a car. Yeah. I'm she's... also addicted to that movie. Oh, good. Oh, okay. So why do you think you're yeah, addicted why, to it? Yeah, what's your deal? Well, you know, I have to, a number of things. As someone who likes Anne Hathaway, Meryl Streep, Emily Blunt, Stanley Tucci. Emily it Blunt is, is fantastic. It's a kind of a peak movie for all of them in a way. And as a Meryl Streep fan, I have to say, something we all have to confront if we're Meryl Streep fans, is that her filmography can be a little spotty. 
and that More than her a bad movies aren't always enjoyable. Um, and this is a case of, where I, I really wouldn't call Deborah's Prada a bad movie, but it, it's classic Meryl. She owns the movie. And I agree with you, there's something very real about her, but it's also showboating in a way that I absolutely love sometimes. Um, it's kind of, if you like her, it's kind of what you've always wanted her to you do. You always wanted like, her oh, to do Like, oh, finally, that. she's doing the movie that she was in. It stopped trying her to take hair. it too seriously. Why hadn't she had hair like that in a movie before? <laughs> right. Why hadn't she been a magazine editor in a movie before? It's right. just something about that movie makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Is it a gay thing, do you think? Yes. I'm, I'm sure. going to say <laughs> sure part I am it. ruling this is clearly a Babadook thing. So Babadook, Sorry. <laughs> Prada, got it. Yes. Got it. Yes. Yeah, let's just leave it at that. Yeah. It's, it's a gay thing. It, no, I don't know. I mean, my, because let me tell it's you, I've never seen it. It's a gay thing. Because <laughs> I've never seen it, even though I'm a woman who works in a magazine. And guess who gave me the blue, combo Blu-ray DVD? My gay roommate. Um, so, I think you're going to enjoy it. Well, okay, sure. Am I going to really enjoy women tearing each other down? That's not really what happens. Women ensnared by the patriarchy, where the only <laughs> thing she can do that is how well, she cuts she cuts down her little assistant. There yeah. are there are there are That's echoes there. of that. Yeah. Okay. That's all there. <laughs> Experience it, Violet. I Experience will. I'm not. You know, you know. I'll give it a shot. You know, it's funny because you were talking about Clueless. I never watched it when I was actually a teenage girl because I was like, I was suffering from not like other girls syndrome. You know, you watch the trailer and you're like, oh my God, she has a rotating closet. What? I'm not like that. And then I saw it as an adult and I was like, oh my God, I've been denied years and years and years of cinematic pleasure. This is so fucking good. The 90s were actually excellent. What is wrong with me? But speaking of the 90s, the other movie that I just can't stop watching and that I really love is Ed Wood. Mmm, yummy mm. noises all around. <laughs> Tim Burton's last good movie. It was. I was going to point that out. Yes, because obviously whenever there's a biopic, it's going to almost certainly going to be a hagiography of a person. 99.9% of the time. But this is a hagiography in the best possible way. Because what is it? It's taking Ed Wood, played by Johnny Depp, with like a Ronald Reagan inflection, he said, and I totally see that. Taking on this guy who made absolute shit. He made, quote unquote, the worst movie of all time, Plan 9 from Outer Space, and just making him into like the sweetest, most positive person of all time. And it's just so like, it's very funny. It's very campy. Jeffrey Jones as Criswell, uh, Martin Landau as Bella Lugosi. Um, One of the best performances I've ever seen in my life. Karlov, sidekick. Bullshit! That limey cocksucker can rot in hell for all I care. That's addiction. That's addiction, baby. Um, and then, of course, Bill Murray is Bunny Breckenridge. When he goes to get baptized and he's like, they're like, you know, do you accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior in this giant pool? And he's like, yeah, sure. And they just dunk him under the pool in his, in his like beautiful white suit. It's a really great movie and just very funny. And then also, you know, just it has this relentless positivity about it that is totally corny but then also genuinely makes me feel great and I think obviously the the writing team you know Scott Alexander and Larry Karazaweski they sort of try to repeat that with big eyes and just completely fucked it up I think that's probably like a late Tim Burton thing <laughs> um just Every aspect of Big Eyes is trying so hard to be like Ed Wood, and it just like cannot do it, and it's very sad. But we'll always have Ed Wood. And it's what kind of twenty three years old now. Mm-hmm. Isn't there a a kind of uh, an accompanying tragedy to this addiction? Looking back on Johnny Depp. Oh, totally. I was thinking. Um, yeah. When I, I suppose a few years after that, Donnie Brasco, I think, is an excellent film. I think he's he's great in that. But I'm really struggling to think of serviceable Johnny Depp I mean, performances. Clearly the turning point after. is the turning point is Sleepy Hollow because he was cl- he was like doing like goofy British accent. But even I that would say was the, re- pushing it, the real yeah, the yeah, real turning point is Pirates of the Caribbean part 1 Obviously. or whatever it was called because it became really sellable. Right. That was a huge blockbuster. He an Oscar nomination. It was a blockbuster that was partly uh, attributable to his crazy outsized persona. So exactly. he started to believe it and the studios wanted it more so they just put him in Stupid character role after mm-hmm. stupid character role, and now he's just this it's grotesque. Weird Keith Richards tribute act. Yeah, it's well, very strange. Well, that's what he based it on, and then like as a joke, and then he like he did the whole thing as a joke. It's like the mask got stuck on his face. You know it's, what I it's, mean? It's, it's a like, horror film. It, it is literally, a horror film. Yeah, isn't it? Like, yeah, it is. The 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 man who 
became Keith Richards. I know, because obviously he's so goofy in Edward. He's totally goofy, but he's not like doing that. He's not doing that forever. I don't know. There's just something like, you know, when he goes to the bar to, and runs into Orson Welles, like that's a totally stupid, like Ryan Murphy has built a career out of making those moments happen <laughs> and God bless him for it. But like, that was just like the perfect dose of that. Don't bless him. Okay, fine. But wonderfully shot in black and white. Yeah, it's really beautiful to look at. Probably one of the last studio films, except for like Pleasantville, to be shot in black and white. And that so. doesn't really count. No, it doesn't. Because not. it was all about how black and white sucks and has to be made into color. I know. Yeah, exactly. But like, it's also about how Reese Witherspoon getting laid transformed the black and white into color. And I just, that's an important. <laughs> I just want to add is that it? bullet point. Or I just want to I'm, I'm stand. I just want to add that she literally made the world burst into color. And yes. I'm, you know, I do like that. Because like that. she gave someone a hand job in a car or <laughs> right. something. Yeah. And, yeah. Precisely. And, exactly. and that color becomes a metaphor for race or something. Yeah, it's the most confused movie. So race and hand jobs. Yes. <laughs> Can we just say Pleasantville? Not a movie addiction. <laughs> the, the opposite. In fact, um, Absolutely. well, sadly, we have to end it. But before we do, it would be great if we could each go around and say a movie that we saw recently that we liked. I actually saw this one with Michael Koreski. I saw the restoration of Morris. I had only seen it on Bravo very late at night back when Bravo showed movies. Yeah, it's just like one of the most amazing uh, period dramas of all time. I don't have any problem saying that. Um, it's just so beautifully realized and sad and wonderfully acted. And just the final scene is just really one of the most wrenching things and just a, an amazing visual metaphor, I think, too. And so I was very impressed that you were able to get up on the stage and do a Q&A with James Ivory after that. Oh, well, he's a sweetheart. He is. But it's a, yeah, it's a, an incredible film. Uh, it, it, the film that gives the lie to anyone who wants to say that the Merchant Ivory only made wallpaper movies. It's so complex. It's no. so beautifully done. It's so subtle. And it's also very obviously critical. It's not like, hey, this is a great way to live, guys. Isn't it great when there were, when it was just uh, these horrible, repressed, landowning white people <laughs> with inherited wealth? Isn't that, wasn't that great? That was great. No, really, trust me. It's not. It's not like that at all. Well, that was a good one, but I was going to talk. Oh, I, you know, I saw George Cukor's Holiday for the first time with Katherine Hepburn and Cary Grant and Lou Ayers, who I love. It, it's one of those movies like, I can't believe I waited this long to watch it. It was a complete delight beginning to end. Um, and I, I don't say that about every screwball comedy. I have to admit, I like some more than others. This one, um, it's very contained. It, almost, it feels like a play. It's all in one basically takes place in one house it's Cary Grant who's more of like a working class I'm gonna do what I want kind of guy who comes home to meet his new fiance and she turns out to be enormously wealthy um, and then begins a flirtation with her sister played by Catherine Hepburn's very complex stuff going on in that movie I thought it was fabulous I recently saw for the first time courtesy Criterion Collection The Friends of Eddie Coyle oh, yeah. um, by Peter Yates <clears throat> based on a novel by George V. Higgins and I was really blown away by it, by its confidence in silence, in building atmosphere of sweaty tension where every exchange is, seems to be life or death. It's a kind of um, a, a bunch of lowlifes in Boston all kind of trying to quietly outdo each other without saying anything incriminating. And it's anchored by a splendid performance by kind of latter-day Robert Mitchum as an ageing really kind of dodgy, kind of heavy. And opposite him is, is the great Peter Boyle, who gives a wonderful performance. And it's everything that Andrew Dominic's Killing Them Softly, released a few years ago with Brad Pitt and Ray Liotta. It's everything that that film wasn't. I recently saw a movie that's about to come out in like a week or two, Sofia Coppola's The Beguiled, which I'm more than anything excited to talk to people about, particularly people who've seen uh, the 70s original and... Um, you know, the hot Clint Eastwood original, because I'm just so interested to talk to people about about how Sofia Coppola revises that um, and also to get people's feelings on what it means to have a Sofia Coppola movie that doesn't have like a Sofia Coppola soundtrack, which I did not, which seems like a small thing, but her aesthetic is so musical um, and it's such an essential for me talking about movie addictions, like her movies coming up and the soundtracks were so huge for me. Um, and, you know, this is like Civil War era, so it's a little, no, it's a little, not that that would stop her, though, because Marie Antoinette was not the same era as I love Phoenix. It. 
I love it when movies use incongruous music, like A oh, Knight's Tale, starting from A Knight's Tale <laughs> onward. That, absolutely. That fucking, I, I saw that in high school and I was sold from other, from from that point on. Absolutely. What about the, the mad screeching synth score in Witness with the Amish oh guys? Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, come on. <laughs> like, how, like, Ultimate incongruous. Like, or, or like Carlos too. Like, come on. Oh, it's, all, it's all amazing. Absolutely. Well, thank you all for coming. Thank you. Thank you. I thank feel you. like I know you all so much better now. <laughs> You've been listening to the Film Comment Podcast, sponsored by Filmstruck. Filmstruck is the streaming service for fans of great cinema and the exclusive streaming home for the Criterion Collection, featuring a bounty of independent and foreign titles, plus original bonus material. And Filmstruck is now available on Roku. Start your free trial today at filmstruck.com. The Film Comment Podcast is produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold and edited by Michael Odmark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine, or check out our app, available on Android and iOS, at filmcomment.com slash app. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years.